as you know, we are going through the prophets and uh, ask the prophets what they say about, you know, all the pillars of our church. And so my pillar, the one I ended up with, is love where you live. And uh, the goal of this, this sermon series is to remind us that, you know, that lo- all the pillars of Risen Hope, they're not just manufactured and, you know, we, we're not trying to flex the Bible to make it fit with our sort of uh, mission statement. And so we decided to go through the prophets and pick those things out and say, you know, this is what the Bible's been telling his people to focus on, you know, ever since, ever since the earth formed. And, uh, you know, I'm sure many of you who read the Bible know that the prophets often are pretty somber, and there's a lot of woe and punishment. Um, but there's also a lot of promises and a lot of commands that God gives to his people, uh, you know, for thousands of years. And uh, my key verse or key passage today is from Jeremiah 29, 1 through 7. And Jeremiah had the difficult job of preparing the Israelites um, for what's coming, right? First, nobody believed Jeremiah. Uh, he, for, for years, for decades of his life, he would talk to the people of Israel and keep reminding them, you know, if you guys don't repent, God's going to punish you. Um, he literally told them what's going to happen is that Babylon is going to come. They're going to con- conquer Israel and uh, destroy it, basically, and they're not going to have that national identity anymore. But, you know, as fallen humanity seems to be, they pretty much ignored him. And so as Jeremiah is, is writing the chapter 29, well, he's writing a letter, um, you know, if I was in his position, I'd be tempted to say, hey, guys, I told you so. I told you this would happen. Um, but instead, Jeremiah has a lot more grace by the grace of God, and he's actually just telling them what God is wishing that they would do while they're in exile. So let's read Jeremiah. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconia and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, Elasa, I don't know how to pronounce that, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So we'll spend a bit of time unpacking this passage. And so 
Jeremiah is writing here to a people that were forcefully taken from their homes and brought into a strange land. Um, if you could move up to show the slide with the map on it. So you could see that's kind of the journey they had to take. And based on the scale there, that's a little over a thousand kilometers that they had to travel by foot. And so this people, I mean, they're all there forced. They had to take this long march. They had to resettle into the land of Babylon. You know, they had to learn all the new produce that grows there, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of work. And uh, they can't just go home. You know, you can't just get up and leave. There's a lot of uh, logistics involved from getting back from Babylon to Israel, even if you wanted to escape. It involves traveling basically through the, all of enemy territory to get back home. And so, you know, I would imagine that this people would be pretty angry. And they received this letter. And look at the things that Jeremiah tells them to do while, while being exiled. Um, he says, build houses and live in them. You know, he tells them to plant gardens and eat whatever grows in those gardens. He says, get married and have children. Um, he says, get, you know, raise your kids and have the, uh, watch them get married and uh, go out into the world. He tells them to multiply, to keep, you know, to keep the population up. And then the two important aspects, he says, seek the welfare of the city and pray to the Lord on its behalf. It's also important to keep in mind as we look through this passage that, uh, that Jeremiah wants them to know that it was God who sent them into exile, um, into Babylon. And even though the Lord used Babylon to exact this punishment of Israel, he wants them to know that they are there not because the Babylonians wanted them there, but because God had ordained that they would be there. Part of it is punishment, you know, but as they live in exile, the Lord wants them to bless Babylon of sorts. And, you know, the cities and countries, the regions where they're replanted into, where they're being exiled into, um, they were supposed to be a blessing to that nation. It's kind of a, you know, when you think about God's will and God's uh, providence for the people, for this people, you know, he's, he's basically using them to punish, he's using their exile to punish the Israelites, while at the same time, he wants Babylonians to see the glory of God and to see God's love through the Israelites. Um, you know, I would find the words of Jeremiah pretty tough to, to swallow. Uh, you know, it's like, first of all, uh, I'd be mad at God for exiling me into this land. I'd be mad at the Babylonians for forcing me to live there, et cetera, et cetera. But God is saying, no, you guys are, you know, this is a long-term plan for you. You know, growing a garden and enjoying the produce of it isn't going to take a couple weeks. He's saying, you know, settle there for years. You know, you're going to have to be okay with being there for generations, basically. And if you know anything about the Israelites, they spent, all this time trying to get to the promised land that God, that pro, the, you know, that God promised them. And here they are, um, bas God basically telling them 
to just enjoy life in their new location. And so here they are, um, the, the Israelites are in an enemy territory and they're supposed to live life and bless the city and the place where they're in. And I hope that you're beginning to see kind of the parallels of the Israelites in their current predicament and the church, us as believers. Um, let's re read real fast, Second Peter, or Peter 2, 11 through 12, not Second Peter, First Peter. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And so it's not an accident that Peter addresses us, the, you know, the believers, as exiles. He is using the language of exiles to remind us that this is our temporary home. And just as the Israelites were exiles in Babylon... We are to consider ourselves exiles on this earth. And, uh, you know, we are to be okay with it because our identity is found in Christ. We are not going to be defined by where we live. We're not going to be defined, we're not going to be recognized as Babylonians, even if we live in Babylon. But, you know, we are to be a blessing, even when, you know, one line that stands out of this passage is when they speak against you as evildoers. You know, it's not easy being in exile. As a matter of fact, we know from the stories of the Old Testament that the Israelites were hated and despised while they lived in Babylon. Um, we know the story of Daniel, how much uh, his colleagues in the profession that were, he was in hated him and wanted to ruin his career and get him thrown into the lion's den. Um, we know the story of Esther, where they were, there was a conspiracy against the whole Jewish population in Babylon at the time, where they just wanted to destroy Israel. And I know I don't need to remind you guys how the Christians that were spoken by the media and popular culture in the U.S. today, and we know plenty of stories even up to this day of Christians being killed for their faith. Um, Paul says in Romans 8 that we are killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But the crazy thing is, is none of that should negate the call to love the place where we live and the people of where we live. And so although Jeremiah did not say it explicitly, but seeking the welfare of and praying for the city of Israelites' captivity, you know, it simply cannot be done without love for it. And, uh, you know, despite the often somber tone of the prophets, the prophets leave plenty of commandments or plenty of clues um, what it means to love where we live and to love the people of where we live. And uh, not all the prophets write like Jeremiah to Israelites in exile, but they do write to all of Israel about their conduct. And so, you know, we already wrote, uh, read Jeremiah uh, 29, 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile 
and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And there's two big things in this passage. So as we dive into what it means to love where we live, and uh, so basically, um, this is kind of an all-encompassing thing, is where we seek the welfare of the city and all the people that live there, and we pray for them. And the big one here, and I'd like us for us to start here, is the emphasis on prayer. And uh, all throughout the New Testament, there's reminders Jesus tells us to pray. The apostles, Apostle Paul reminds us to pray. And uh, because God hears us. You know, part of our identity is being in Christ and knowing that our Father in heaven will hear our prayers. Right? We have that amazing privilege to speak directly to the Father, you know, the thing that this world lacks. The people in this world, a lot of them hate God, a lot of them are agnostic to God, but they don't know that they can speak directly to God, and we have this amazing thing that God gave us, that we can come to our daddy in heaven and just talk to him, right? And God wants us to talk to our dad uh, about our cities, about the places where we live, about our neighborhoods, about our neighbors, and, you know, that's one reason God placed recent hope into this neighborhood is so that we as a church, as a body of believers, would lift up Kingsgate in our prayers. And, uh, you know, the challenge to that is that we are, there's a lot of, um, a lot of, I guess, counterculture antagonism towards prayer. Um, you guys probably read a tweet here or there that, uh, you know, what good is prayer? You know, guys get, should be people of action. You know, stop sending your thoughts and prayers. And I've seen quite a bit of antagonism by prominent Christians who take the same position. And prayer is often trivialized and marginalized as just empty talk and words or an excuse to avoid being active in, uh, in the welfare of our, our cities. But... As, uh, as the Israelites are finding out, God wants them to pray for the city. Um, and the, one of the main reasons for that is that as we start to pray for something, as we start to pray for the, our neighbors, we start to grow in love for the, uh, to them. And uh, we start to see that, you know, God's love, we start to see God's love towards the people around us. I mean, otherwise he wouldn't ask the Israelites to pray on their behalf. You know, we know, the, we know Jonah. His whole condition was that fact that he ran from God because God told him to go and preach the gospel to the Ninevites. And, uh, you know, we, we didn't see Jonah's heart change there, but God is calling us, and our, our heart change will begin with prayer. And be, especially because the problems in the places we live are so huge. Uh, we have oppression. We have, you know, so many, many people that need our help. There's so much depression. There's suicide is rampant. Uh, we have, you know, drug overdoses. We have prostitution. We have kid trafficking all in the region of where we live in the Puget Sound area. And, you know, it's overwhelming. But that's why we begin with prayer and to ask God for guidance into where uh, where we can help and where we should help and where we should love because we can come to God with helplessness. Prayer, you know, when you bow down before God, 
you are showing that you're helpless before him. You are helpless in, uh, you know, in your circumstances. And uh, we are pretty helpless to help a lot of the problems in our cities. But the question that should stand in our hearts is like, am I willing? Do I love this place enough to start praying for it? Right? Simple, simple as that. And then after that, you know, God moves and tells the Israel to seek the welfare of the city, of where they, should, where they would be living. You know, wherever they got transplanted into in the Babylonian Empire. And uh, welfare simply means the health, happiness, and fortunes of a person or group. Um, that could sound, you know, the pros sound prosperity gospel-ish. Uh, but the thing is, is God, we're not asking God for that, but God is asking us to be the benefactors uh, to the city, to our neighbors. So he's challenging them to be, basically, he told the Jewish Israel exiles, and you know, he's calling risen hope to seek the health, happiness, and fortunes of people around us. Um, he's calling us to be active in improving the lives of people around us. And it's a pretty high but and tough calling and um, I'm afraid that's something that we cannot accomplish with indifference and apathy towards the people around us. But if we do, that means it's, it's an active way that we can show love. Um, let's take a, some time and see what other prophets say about what it means to love where we live. And I love the prophets because they instant, they're, they're instant pragmatism. There's a lot of practical things to do and be active in. So Malachi 3.5, and then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Now, this passage requires some reverse thinking. So, if God says, I will punish you for not doing this, right, we can say, I should probably do this, right, kind of a thing. I got that a lot when I was a young kid, so, you know, if I got spanked for not doing the dishes, I'm like, I should probably preemptively wash the dishes, unless, you know, or I'll get a spanking. And so, what God says is that, you know, my intentions here for you, Israel, is that when you hire somebody, you are generous with your wages to your hired workers, right? Um, and then widows, uh, that you do not oppress the widows and the fatherless, meaning you take an active role in blessing and protecting the widows and the fatherless. Whether it's somebody you know, or whether you see an injustice done to the widows and the fatherless, to the orphans, you have to, as a believer, as a child of God, take an active role in protecting them, right? Um, against those who thrust aside the sojourner means we have to take an active role in bringing strangers into our midst, right? It's not enough to be indifferent or not uh, thrust aside, but if God is punishing Israel, is challenging Israel, the fact that they throw the sojourners out, 
means we should be actively bringing the strangers in and make them feel loved and make them feel like they belong to us as they are part of our family. Isaiah says something really similar in chapter 1, uh, verses 16 and 17. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove evil, the evil of your deeds from before your eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. You know, to love where we live is not a passive sentiment and desire for things to be good and right. Although we should desire things to be good and right, if we are to act, you know, to love, for our love to be seen in this world, we have to be active in what God is speaking to us, about to us uh, through the prophets, uh, Isaiah and Malachi, in this instant. And so to love means to seek justice where being treated unjustly. Um, it's not enough, you know, there's a lot of tweets and there's a lot of social media posts, but we have to rise above that and actually do something. To love me means to correct and fix oppression in all the ways that it shows itself. We shouldn't be waiting for somebody else to stand up and do it. We gotta be on the front lines of fixing oppression. Uh, to love means bringing justice to the fatherless and to be the ones who are helping the widows and all these things are difficult to do, right? We don't want to get our hands dirty. It's much easier to sit at home and talk about it or ignore the news or just get used to the fact that there's a lot of injustice and oppression in this world. But God is telling us basically through the prophets um, to open our eyes and to be active in what's going on in, uh, in the places where we live. There's a lot of problems in this world, and a lot of them are overwhelming, like you know. But um, God placed you where you live to be an active part in seeking the welfare of the place where you live. Now, I realize that um, there's some political overtones, and there's a tinge that could sound like uh, politics. But what God is saying here is direct message to his people. Right? It doesn't matter what political party we align ourselves to or which way we lean on the political spectrum. As believers, we have the word of God coming directly to us. And it doesn't matter, you know, it's like what the world thinks or how they'll, they'll judge that you'll vote in the next election. What God is saying, if you see a problem in this world, then as believers, we have to be actively pursuing that to fix that problem because of the love of Christ that is in us. Because God hates uh, oppression. God's ha God hates injustice. God hates when sojourners are thrust aside and unwelcomed. And, uh, you know, we have to pray a lot for the heart of God to be able to see the sojourners, the strangers, to see oppression and in injustice, and to be on the front lines of fixing that. Um, let's read another passage from Jeremiah, uh, this time 34:15. You recently repented and did what was right in, the, uh, in my eyes by proclaiming liberty each to his neighbor. And you made a covenant before me in the house that is called by my name. And I love this passage because, you know, some of you will know who uses the phrase to proclaim liberty in the New Testament. And this is the most uh, Sunday school answer. It's Jesus. Uh, Jesus says that, about himself in Luke 4, 18. 
the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. After Jesus reads this passage, he says, the scripture has been fulfilled. Um, what Jesus is saying, I'm the fulfillment of what Isaiah has uh, wrote to you guys. Um, Jesus is the message of proclamation of liberty. What he's saying, you know, I'm the good news that the Lord sent to you. And so to love where we live means that we proclaim liberty to our neighbors. Or another way of saying it is we, to love where we live, we, mu we are to proclaim the gospel to all the people around us, to our neighbors, especially. The same spirit that was on Jesus, he gave to us. And he sent us to preach the gospel, to preach the good news to all people. And it's amazing that Jeremiah, uh, prophesying this, he said that to the people of Israel. I don't know if Jeremiah knew that Jesus Christ would be the one that's saying that this prophecy is fulfilled in me. But, you know, it's also being fulfilled in us because Jesus is sending us to preach the good news and to share the amazing gospel with our neighbors. Um, and because we love our, the, and when we love the people around us, we're going to want them to hear the good news and be saved. And another pre, uh, passage from the prophets, well, I'll get to that one a little later. Um, because loving the people um, of where we live means we want to see them saved. We don't love them just for their, you know, just so they're well off materially and they're blessed financially, and they're in good health, which all things are great, but we love them because we want to see the love of Jesus in their life. We want to see that the, you know, we want to stand next to them in church and worship God with them. Um, and that's how our love should be, should be shown to our neighbors. And now let's uh, read Zech Zechariah 3.10. It's a really beautiful passage. It's short, but I think it paints a wonderful picture of the Lord's desire for his people. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Um, this is what you call the, you know, the Jewish dream. You have the American dream, but this is the Jewish dream. Everyone wanted a piece of fertile land where they could grow. They have a vineyard. You know, that's probably the Woodenville dream as well. Um, and they wanted bountiful fig trees and bountiful olive harvests, etc. And what God is telling them through Zechariah, that not only will that be fulfilled in the future, but that he wants them to invite their neighbors into that joy and that blessing. Now, close your eyes, guys, and imagine this, right? You're out on your back porch or your deck, and you, the sun is shining, it's summer, the sky is blue, there are fluffy clouds in the sky, you have a cold drink in your hand, and you smell something wonderful being grilled on the grill. It's just like a perfect day and it feels good to be alive. And so to love where we live means to invite our neighbors into that dream, into that fulfillment of what God has given us. You know, God 
gives us these precious moments in life, not only for ourselves, but so that through them we can bless others and show, how, show God's love to our neighbors. They're simple joys, you know. It's wonderful to just have a cold drink on Sunday afternoon in, a, in, a, in the shade in the summer, in the wonderful summers of Washington, and just eat a burger or a steak. But God gives us moments just so we can invite other people in to share. You know, it's not hard. It's the great thing about Lord. He starts off with like, you guys, I've given you all these blessings. You live in a wonderful place. You have food. You have drink. Now invite your neighbors into that so they can share in the joy. Because when they see your joy, they'll know that it's different than theirs. Oftentimes, you know, in our culture of com competition, and we see all these social media, we get jealous of people doing this and that. We can just have a simple joy of enjoying a Sunday barbecue outside with no pretense or underlying competition or, you know, social status and just invite our neighbors into that. You know, I'd like to re, re, some, re paraphrase this, uh, this verse. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor over to your deck for some grilled food and cold drinks. But you guys see the, the picture there, right? Where God just wants you guys to invite, to love your neighbors in that. You know, God's intention, I hope you get, we're all seeing the picture here, is that even through before Israel was formed, before Jesus came, his intention was always that the Israelites show his love and display his love to everyone around them. And now, as God's children, the call is the same for us. And that love includes everything from sharing food and drink on a sunny day or, you know, sharing the gospel message when we get to that point with our neighbors or, you know, standing up in the front lines of fighting oppression and injustice. God's love for, you know, God's desire for his love to be displayed through us is, is boundless. It comes in many forms. And uh, as believers, we shouldn't limit ourselves to the way we're going to display love. But be led by the Holy Spirit in how his lo uh, love is displayed through us. And that's going to include some awesome, joyful moments. But that's also going to include some tough uh, dirty moments where you have to stand up for others and feel pain and, uh, and the sorrow that comes with it. And there are a lot of reasons for why we should love, why God is telling us to love. But I'd like to focus on two main ones. And you guys remember the story of when Jesus reminded the Pharisee lawyer what the greatest commandment was, and we can quickly read in Matthew 22, 37 through 40. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment and the second is like it. You shall love the neighbor at your, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And so I hope you will paint the picture that through this love that we have, that God is calling us to have through his neighbors, this, command, this greatest commandment is fulfilled. And uh, it's fulfilled. And when we show love to our neighbors, you know, we fulfill the commandment to love our neighbors as ourselves. And when 
our neighbors start to fall in love with God and with Jesus and start to praise him, then the greatest commandment is fulfilled. You know, there's both, both the vertical and the horizontal relationship of love here that we start to get for the Father. And there's an awesome passage in Ezekiel that paints the picture of why we should love he get where we live. It gives us one of the reasons. And so let's read together Ezekiel 47, 22 through 23. And if you've read Ezekiel, you know it's a pretty depressing book overall, but this is one great promise that God has uh, for Israel. He says, You shall allot it as an inheritance, an inheritance for yourself and for, for the sojourners who reside among you and have children among you. They shall be to you as native-born children of Israel. With you they shall be allotted an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. In whatever tribe the sojourner resides, there you shall assign him his inheritance, declare the, the Lord God. Um, so God through Ezekiel is describing a future restoration of Israel. He's saying, you know, once all these punishments are done, once you guys come out of exile, once you guys, you know, believe in me, you will have this promise for yourself. You will finally share in, in my inheritance. And partly this is written for the church as well to understand because God says we will share in Jesus' inheritance because we are his children. And so what the, who the sojourners for us in this passage are our neighbors who are right now strangers to us because they don't believe in Jesus, but because through our love for them, we want to see them be these sojourners who join us as God's children and sharing in the inheritance of Jesus. You know, the only reason or, well, not the only reason, I guess, but we, only we as believers can love our neighbors um, in such a way where they will see that our love is different. And uh, part of that love is because we know that our love <clears throat> breaches the bounds of mortality and reaches into eternity. When Christ died for us, he did not just give us love for this earth, his love, will be, we will be able to feel even greater in heaven, right? And if we want to share that love with our neighbors, that means our love isn't limited to what we can do on this earth. And when we love our neighbors, we should think about, are we loving them into eternity? Because there's, a, there's an eternal stake here. And do we love our neighbors if we are okay with seeing them go to hell, right? It's, it's harsh. And it sounds harsh, but we have to realize what's at stake for their souls. And Jesus gave us this love. He called us his children. He promised an inheritance. And so our love, and we should ask God for this love for our neighbors, is that I want to see my neighbor worshiping Jesus in heaven. You know, like Ezekiel said, our love that we have for our neighbors has eternal. Um, uh, it's... It has an eternal stake. And so finally, let's get back to 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12. And this is the greatest uh, reason for loving our neighbors as ourselves. And so, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. 
keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. So the end game, the biggest reason for loving our neighbors is that God would get the glory. I know, you know, we know the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your might, and with all your soul. But it's hard to see how, hard to know what that looks like and how that should play out in our lives. And uh, this is how it plays, one of the ways it plays out is when we love our neighbor as ourselves, when your neighbor starts to worship God, that's when you know that, you know, you're loving God because you're willing to sacrifice your comforts. You're willing to sacrifice, you know, your resources, your material possessions so that to love your neighbor, just by obeying that commandment, you're saying to God, I love you. And it's not, it's not, there's no mystical things here. It's simply obeying God. And what's awesome is that the more people obey God, the more glory he gets. Um, and here's one example of how it played out uh, in, for the Israelites, for the exiles in Babylon. We can open to Daniel 4, 34 and 35. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his, his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? This is pretty awesome when you consider the implications of this. So this is King Nebuchadnezzar. He just conquered all of the known world as far as he's concerned. Um, he's the most powerful man in this world. And here he is, he's giving glory to God. And so, you know, Daniel played a role in that. When we read the story of Daniel, how he served King Nebuchadnezzar, you know, from as soon as Daniel got into exile, he got placed in the service of the, of the king. And in the end, God used the Israelites in, in the court of King Babylon for, to, for King Nebuchadnezzar to reach this point where he's glorifying God, right? It's an awesome thing. They're like, who could ever imagine that one of us will be able to go to the White House and influence the president for the president to say something like that, especially our current president? And there's a lot of pride in man, especially someone who's in power, but God used the Israelites, his people around King Nebuchadnezzar, to break his heart down for him to be able to say this. And uh, one way he did it was through the sacrifice of uh, Daniel's friends. We all know this story. And uh, by seeing the sacrifice that, that uh, Daniel's friends were, were making were on behalf of God to honor God, uh, that was part of why King Nebuchadnezzar is saying these things because he realized that their, the, Daniel's friends' for love for God was much greater than anything that uh, Babylon could throw at them. And I hope, 
it's making sense, and I hope that the Holy Spirit is touching your hearts because the reason we exist and live where we are, um, the reason Risen Hope exists is because God ordained and weaved our lives together here in Kingsgate um, so that all the people, all our neighbors, you know, where we live in our communities and here would see the love of God for them. And so that through loving those around us, we would fulfill the greatest commandment that Jesus tells us. And uh, what he's calling to us is one of the hardest things to do. It's not easy to love our enemies. It's not easy to love those who are speaking evil against us. Um, it's not easy to play, pray for a city or somebody that's actively persecuting you or persecuting Christians. And uh, my hope is that this message today, this morning, is, uh, is more of an encouragement because over the last couple of years since Risen Hope was planted, there's been amazing things done to love the people around us. And this is a call to just continue to realize that God's will has changed since the prophet's time. God's will is still for us to love the people around us. And, uh, you know, it might be hard to love in the moment, but there's great joys that come in the end to see the smiling faces of people who, we, who we've helped. And it's God's blessing because, you know, it's whatever your philosophy is about sacrifice, you know, it's amazing to see people joyful for what you have done for them. And this is why we have communion every Sunday. It's a reminder for us of the love that Christ shared, uh, gave to us. He was willing to die and spill his blood so that he would be able to get us into heaven, to share in his inheritance, to have that joy that he has promised us. And uh, communion is a reminder of that. It's a reminder that he loves us and he was willing to die on our behalf to save us. And so as we partake in the bread and wine this morning, I hope we're reminded that we are given this love to, to, to share it, to share it around with everyone around, uh, with everyone around us, with our neighbors, um, with the widows, the orphans, the oppressed, the poor. There's no limit, right? We know our stories. We know how some of us hated God uh, before he rescued us. And so we should be willing to go as far as love and uh, help those who hate us. And uh, yeah, maybe so. God's grace is freely given and his, he loves us. And we, should, we are invited into that wonderful work. Let's pray. Ah, Jesus, you're awesome and amazing. And there's nothing that you haven't done for us. On the cross, you died. You spilled your blood so that we would be redeemed from our sins. And because of that, you made us your children. And we have an amazing promise awaiting for us in heaven not only to be with you for eternity, but to have the joys and inheritance that God has promised you, Lord. We thank you, and I hope that you move our hearts to continue to love everyone around us, to share our joys, to share our material possessions with those in need. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>